0: Let's prepare for some time in God's Word today. If you're turning your Bibles to John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8. As you're turning there, um, last and I was at the, uh, the rugby game against uh, South Africa with uh, Steve Vickery and, um, and uh, our American friend that was here, John and Ryan, and anyway, it was it's always an experience going to the Welsh rugby game here, because they start with that bread of heaven, and... Part of me is overwhelmed by the, the majesty of all those voices singing, but part of me is disturbed by that because of of the sixty four thousand in attendance. I wondered how many really knew what they were singing about, and it 's a wonderful hymn, and the truths of the words that are being spoken are fabulous: Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more and I was thinking about the things we've seen Jesus pictured as thus far. He's talked about being that very bread, right? He's talked about being the living water. Um, And all of these things are absolutely true. They're eternal truths that all say the same thing, that Jesus is the only source of eternal life. And today we come to a very similar passage as well. Jesus will speak of himself as the light, the light of the world. Now, as we come to this, this part here, the narrative here that we're going to come to continues from where we left off not last week, but two weeks ago, verse 52 of chapter 7. Um, if, you, if you missed last week, I don't have time to go into all that uh, as to the reason why that is. Uh, but if you recall, uh, chapter 7, verse 53 to 811 were more than likely not part of John's original gospel. Uh, they have been added. It is a, it is a historical um, account That has been uh, put in the scripture from a scribe somewhere along the way, um, sandwiched here. But it does not fit the narrative. It does not fit uh, John's um, style of writing. And as I said, many of the older manuscripts don't even have it. And if they do, they mark it as questionable material. And many of the manuscripts have this section in different parts of the Bible. But we still looked at it as uh, we can still learn from it. So what we're looking at today continues not from that, but from verse 52. So I'm going to go back to verse 52 and read what was said there of chapter 7. They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Now, that was a, a scathing statement to Nicodemus, and really a remark about those who come from Galilee. Jesus had been ministering in Galilee, and so that's sort of a backwater region, and no prophet would come from there. Nothing good would happen there, and Nicodemus, standing up for Jesus, gets that rebuke. Handed to him, and what John does, the author here places this next statement, or this this statement from Jesus, I think, in uh, chapter eight, verse twelve, as a rebuttal against what was said here. So, if you look at verse twelve, this is what he says: Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, "I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life." And I mentioned last week uh, the reason I think that is the case. I think possibly Jesus is alluding to an Old Testament. Prophetic passage, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. Isaiah says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. By way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. That it wasn't so bad for the people in Galilee because they had seen a light. But they used to walk in darkness. Now remember, Jesus has been up at the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. And Jesus has alluded to a a ritual outpouring of water that would take place at that feast daily. uh, When he said, if anyone thirsts, uh, let him come to me and drink. Well, that daily ritual of outpouring of water had a counterpart that took place at night. And it was a lamplighting ceremony. And it took place in the court of the women. And that's where Jesus is speaking at the particular moment. If you skip down to verse 20, you'll see. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Now, the treasury is not a reference to a building, but it's a reference to 13 boxes that were located in the court of the women. And each box had a mark on it that designated what the offering would go to, so temple tax or uh, whatever it might be. We're going to start incorporating that. Next week you'll see 13 boxes in here. and uh, No, I'm just kidding. We won't do that. But you might remember in, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus will observe a poor widow putting in her last two mites into one of those treasury boxes. Well, those boxes were located in the court of the women. The court of the women was the furthest point a woman could walk in the temple. And so that's where he is at this moment. But also in that court of the women were four huge candelabra. And they would light these things at night. And there would be these big beacons of light that would go up in the temple, in the temple courtyard. And it was to commemorate God's presence with the Israelites during the day as a pillar of cloud and at night as a pillar of fire while they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. And the people would gather together and they would sing and they would dance in front of these great big uh, candelabras that were, were lit. So Jesus is making reference, I think, again, to something taking place at the feast. The motif of light and darkness with which this section opens uh, ties together uh, previous themes introduced by John, right? This is not a new thing from John. Uh, turn back in John chapter 1. just want to remind us of some of the things that we've seen from, from John. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, he said this, "...in him was life, and the life was the light of men." And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. And we spoke quite a bit about what that light was meant to do. And then in John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the condemnation. The light has come into the dark, light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John uses the contrast between light and darkness to illustrate something for us. He's Illustrating the moral contrast between spiritual life and spiritual death. To walk in darkness means to fail to see the moral implications of one's sin. No one would say that they're perfect, right? If you would ask someone today if they were perfect, most people would say, well, no, I'm not perfect. I might do one or two things wrong, right? I might sin a little bit. But they would fail to see this. They would fail to see the magnitude of their sin. And they would fail to see the implications of that sin. The wages of sin is death. And that's what walking in darkness is, spiritual death. But to walk in the light is to live a life with a full understanding of the reality of one's sin. You understand your sin, and you understand your need for salvation. Therefore, a life lived without Christ is a life lived in spiritual darkness, but Christ is the light that's come into the world, and he is life itself. So this is taking place here at the perfect time in John's gospel because you're going to note something. This symbolism is going to provide continuity between uh, what we're seeing here in chapter uh, seven and eight, and also on into chapter nine, where Jesus is going to, he's going to heal a man born blind. Born blind. And the Pharisees, in spiritual blindness, won't see the magnitude of what has taken place. And so there's a contrast uh, there between their spiritual blindness and this man's newfound sight given to him by the light. So keep that in mind. This is sort of an, uh, a symbolism that will carry on as we go. But what are we looking at today in chapter eight? Well, What does this life-giving light have to say to the Pharisees here in this chapter? Two things we're going to look at um, about the spiritually blind. Uh, Spiritually blind, number one, reject Jesus' testimony, and number two, die in their sins. So let's look at the passage, see what it has to say, and then we'll break it down. Starting in verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law, that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself because he says, Where I go you cannot come? And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And he spoke these words. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity now to hear from you, your very words. God, I just pray that you would speak into your, uh, the hearts of your people, Lord. There's much for us to take and digest today, so we recognize we need the help of your spirit. So illuminate truth for us today. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, first we're going to notice this, that the spiritually blind are, are people who reject Jesus. That's just the first step. Jesus can't be something you actually commit, um, uh, consider. Um, you might consider him as a historical figure, but nothing more than that. And so look at verse 13. This is their response here. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. The Pharisees don't believe his testimony, and they reject it because, as they state here, uh, they believe. Uh, that uh, he is just testifying of himself. He's his own witness. And according to Old Testament law, as we've seen, you have to have two witnesses to establish a matter, right? So they're just sticking to Old Testament law. You can't just be your own witness. You need someone else to be a witness. So they refuse to consider Jesus's claims based on that. But what are the claims specifically? Well, much of what Jesus teaches here is an expansion of what he has brought up in chapter 7. So we are going to be flipping back and forth between here in chapter 7 just a little bit, but let me just show you kind of some of the uh, comparison that's taking place. Go back to chapter 7 and look at the statement he made, the second half of chapter uh, 7, verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then you skip to where we are today in verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We have two statements, uh, both of which the point is the same. Jesus is the source of life. You're thirsty, come to him for drink. Believe in him, right? You're walking in darkness, come to him for light. Follow him. So follow and believe have the same meaning. You believe in Jesus, you follow him, right? Right? So we're going to go back and forth a little bit to see what Jesus has said in chapter 7 as he develops these points in in chapter uh, 8. So look at verses 27 and 28 of chapter 7. 27 and 28. However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. So remember they were saying this about Jesus. We know where Jesus is from, but when the Messiah comes... No one's supposed to know where he comes from, which, which wasn't true. And then in verse 28, Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Now, If you remember uh, two weeks ago, I actually took you to, uh, to verse 14 to show you that Jesus says something completely contradictory to that statement. <laughs> so go to verse 14 of our passage today. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. So chapter 7, he says, you know where I come from and where I'm going. In chapter 8, he says, you don't know where I come from and where I'm going. So what, what, what which is true? Is Jesus contradicting himself? Well, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, no. Uh, in chapter 7, they were wrong. They didn't know where he was from. They all assumed he was from uh, uh, Nazareth, but they didn't know he was from Bethlehem. They all assumed you weren't supposed to know where the Messiah was come from, but the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. So they were sort of the ignorant bunch of the group. And so Jesus, in a sort of mocking way, sort of ironically states, so you know where I'm come from, huh? You know where I'm going. You don't even know him. You don't even know the one who sent me. Remember, it makes them angry. They want to take hold of him. But they couldn't. Well, Jesus is not here um, to sort of say things in a sarcastic manner in this passage. He's very blunt. He's very clear. And so he says, if I bear witness of myself, which he's doing, my witness is true, for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from and where I am going. This begins three evidences that Jesus is going to give to support his self-testimony. Can Jesus be his own testimony? Can he he give testimony for himself? He can. And the first evidence here is his uh, divine origin, his divine origin. He bears witness of himself. Why? Because he knows where he came from and where he's going. Here's the thing about that. As the light of the world sent by the Father into darkness, he has always been completely conscious of uh, his heavenly origin and his destiny. He has been very open about that. He's been talking about that. In John chapter 16, verse 28, he'll say this, I came forth from the Father, and I've come into the world, and again I leave the world and go to the Father. Right? Very clearly, I've come this way, and I'm going that way. And by contrast, those that are in spiritual darkness, who he is talking to, the Pharisees, cannot know this. They have no ability to understand that, because they're on a completely different path. The Bible describes uh, sinners as those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the paths of darkness. They live on a different road altogether, right? They're on a, a whole different path. Jesus has come on a completely different path here. So they can't know where he's from. They can't know where he's going. Uh, It's impossible because they're spiritually blind. They live in spiritual darkness. Paul describes this uh, darkness like this. In Ephesians 4.18, he says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. They have their understanding darkened Darkened they're actually alienated, separated from God, and Paul ultimately says it all stems from one thing ignorance, the ignorance that is in them they're ignorant to the truth and Jesus further exposes their ignorance in verse fifteen look at it you judge according to the flesh, you judge according to the flesh what you what you can see, what you can touch right also by human standards as sinful fallen men in a fallen World. And because they're judging that way, they're limited. They're limited by superficial appearances. They only saw his flesh. And if you remember, in chapter 7, Jesus already admonished them for this. Look at chapter 7, verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Right? He's already admonished them. Don't judge according to appearance, judge with righteous judgment. And here he says, you judge according to the flesh. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians five sixteen to 17 I think it helps a bit to understand something. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old have, things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A lot of us know 2 Corinthians five seventeen. That's a you know, standard memory verse. But verse 5 16 says something very interesting. That we did know Christ in the flesh. We did know him, but we no longer know him in the flesh, in the spirit. And why? Because we become something new. We're no longer in the flesh. You're a new creation. The old things have passed away. Something new has taken place. Become because believers have spiritual understanding now, um, we're new creations. We see Jesus for who he truly is. And not just Jesus, by the way. We see others as eternal souls. That's something unique, right? We see eternal souls. When I sat in that rugby stadium, I saw 64,000 eternal souls singing about something they knew nothing of. Spiritual understanding brings those things to life. And you recognize everyone else sees in the flesh. But when you see in the spirit, That only happens because of the new creation that is taking place in me and in you. We walk a different path. We've seen the light, right? Christ is the light, and he's illuminated those things for us. But these guys, they judge according to the flesh. They judge according to the flesh. But how does Jesus judge? Look at the second half of verse 15. He said, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Very concisely, he says, it says he doesn't. He doesn't judge. Jesus did, he didn't come to judge. We looked at this verse several times, John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So he's come to save it. The world already stood condemned. But I will add, he will judge in the future. But this brings up the second evidence of his self-testimony. The first is his divine origin, but the second is his divine nature. Look at verse 16. Divine nature. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I'm not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. So, first things, Jesus will judge in the future. John chapter 5, verse 22, you might remember he said this. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Remember, it was one of those statements of equality with God. When he said that, they weren't happy to hear that. Because... All of the Old Testament only pointed to the Father being the one who judges. So for Jesus to come along and say, yeah, he doesn't do the judging, I do. That, that was oh no-no, right? They knew exactly what he was saying. He was declaring equality with God, one in nature, um, by insisting that. And the truth is, is that he will, he will come and he will uh, judge in the end times, but he will be merely um, executing the divine will of the Father, The judgment has already been made. He's already just going to carry out the Father's will uh, according to truth, according to the law. That's his job. So all that will take place because of Jesus. That's his role in the future. But by insisting here that he was one with the Father in judgment, Jesus is once again, you can't miss it, declaring equality with God. Uh, His testimony was true because he was the same nature as the true and living God. So he's of divine origin. And he's of a divine nature. And the third evidence he gives is his divine relationship. Look at verses 17 and 18. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. I like this. Jesus refers to the law to which they had appealed earlier, that there must be two witnesses, right, to establish a matter. And so Jesus gives them two witnesses, (laughs) He's like me and the Father. There's your two witnesses. But he's done this before, back in John chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. So he speaks of the fact that he could not bear witness of himself. He recognized that. And so there's another that can, and that was the father. Here he says, oh, so you need to? Okay, so it's my witness and the father. (laughs) The same thing. It's interesting. But the truth is, no human witness can authenticate um, a divine relationship, right? I can't ask anyone in this room to authenticate the relationship between the father and the son. Only the father and the son, in their perfect relationship, can bear witness of the truth, right? They can only do that. And obviously, predictably, they're confused by his statement here. They don't understand, um, so they inquire about it. They inquire about his father. Who are you talking about? Look at verse 19. Then they said to him, where is your father? Uh, Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. So that's a simple answer here. And as we studied earlier, uh, those who reject the son give irrefutable proof that they have uh, rejected the father, that they don't know him. To know the father is to know the son. To know the son is to know the father. They prided themselves on knowing the father, those Pharisees, right? They're the ones that they, if they knew the will of God, it was the Pharisees. But they rejected Jesus, which is God's revelation to them. So their ignorance of Jesus revealed their ignorance of God. They're ignorant. In Matthew fifteen fourteen, this is what Jesus he describes them as. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. They're not physically blind. What is Jesus talking about? Spiritually blind, right? They just, they just don't see. They can't see. So obviously, this statement from Jesus really makes them happy, <laughs> infuriates them. That's why you see what you see in verse 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he's taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come, but they wanted to. They wanted to lay hands on him. I also think this is another thing that, that draws the continuity into chapter 7. Two other times we saw in chapter 7, they wanted to lay hands on him, but his hour had not yet come. So here that has happened again. So again... God is uh, orchestrating things. Jesus is orchestrating things as well on a divine timetable. His hour had not yet come. So here we have just their rejection of Jesus' testimony. They're unwilling to accept that, and the reason is they're spiritually blind. The second point today is the spiritually blind will die in their sins. Um, Just look here back at um, verses, go back to chapter 7. Look at verses 33 to 34 because this is kind of developed more in in chapter 8. 33 and 34, then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Remember he said that, and they couldn't figure out, they were confused as to why he said that. Their only conclusion was that he would go to the area of the Gentiles, maybe, and and, and preach there, which is why they say what they say in verse 36. What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? What is he talking about? So Jesus is going to say a similar thing here in verse uh, 21. Look at it. Verse 21 of chapter 8. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Now if you notice this or not, but Jesus virtually says the same exact thing, with the exception of uh, one very important phrase, and you will die in your sins. This entire section to the end is a simple how-to instruction manual. If you want to know how to die in your sins, this is what you do. Starting in uh, verse 22 all the way to 30, the first one is found in verse 22, and that is this, be self-righteous. Be self-righteous. So the Jews said, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come? That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Pharisees thought this, we're the, we're the ones that are for sure absolutely positively going to heaven, right? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, they were, self, they were so secure in the fact that they were going to heaven that when Jesus said, I'm going somewhere, you cannot come, their only conclusion was that, well, then he must be, be going to be commit suicide. He's going to kill himself because for the Jews to kill oneself meant you were going to the deepest, darkest section of hell. That's where you would go. And so he would go somewhere different that they could not come. Why? Because they are so self-righteous, they will go to heaven. Do you see it? Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, said this, the souls of those whose hands have acted madly against themselves are received by the darkest place in Hades. They really believed that if you were to commit suicide, you'd go to Hell, and not just hell, but the darkest place of hell. And So they really are mockingly suggesting here that Jesus is speaking of killing himself because they, where, where could he be going that they can't go? They're going to heaven. Where's Jesus going? And that's the epitome of self-righteousness, isn't it? Right? You just go to city center even now, and there's people on the streets trying to preach out there, right? And most people are just walking by because most people just think they're Okay. They're, they're content. That is self-righteousness. They're content in their self-righteousness. And the, the Pharisees here are so content in their self-righteousness, they not only miss the true meaning of what Jesus said, but they twisted the meaning of his warning, didn't they? And that's how blind the self-righteous are. When you're faced with a sincere warning of eternal punishment for dying in their sins, they automatically assume they're going to be okay. Paul said this in Romans 10.3, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, are seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. That's really, that's really in a nut- nutshell there. Those who are ignorant, which is those who are spiritually dark, Paul has already established that, um, try to establish their own righteousness, right? So they're, they're not seeking to uh, submit to the righteousness of God, which has been manifest here before them. That's Jesus, right? And they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They just want to establish their their own. And that deadly deception of self-righteousness is what plagues mankind. And it does not result in justification. The declaration that you are innocent of those sins. They assume that it will, but it will not. In fact, it's an abomination. In Luke 16, 15, this is what Jesus says. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to the sight of God. So uh, the outward things actually is an abomination to God. They won't be justified by those things. Turn to Luke chapter 18. You guys will be familiar with this very famous uh, parable that Jesus tells. Luke chapter 18, beginning of verse 9. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And verse 9 sets it up beautifully. It says this, Also, he spoke, to, uh, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So this is a parable to the self-righteous. Verse 10, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers or even as this tax collector i fast twice a week i give tithes of all that i possess and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying god be merciful to me a sinner i tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted That's the perfect example of self-righteousness, the one who stands before God and says, I'm so grateful I'm not like those wicked, sinful people over there, like that tax collector. But the tax collector looked at his heart and saw, I'm just so unworthy. Someone else said this is not my original statement, but someone said that many times we read that parable, and in our hearts we go, I'm so glad I'm not like that Pharisee. We do the same thing. We do that. We have to make sure that we're not in a place of self-righteousness. Works gets you nothing. And the self-righteous are spiritually blind. And Jesus says they will die in their sins. The second surefire way to die in your sins, be worldly. Be worldly. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, you are from beneath I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. So Jesus ignores their mockery, he doesn't even go there, instead he goes and elaborates on his warning. Their origin, just like their destiny, is different than his. He's on a different path. And The word world here is cosmos, and it always refers to, not always refers to, but definitely in John's writings here and in 1 John, to the invisible spiritual world evil system of the world does that make sense we're not talking about the globe right but here we're talking about the world system that opposes god's kingdom paul defines it like this in ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 2 and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience you used to walk that way he says and the way you used to walk is according to the, the the prince of the power of the air. This world has a worldly prince. That's Satan. And everything in this world is is energized by satanic influence. And so, to be worldly then is to not be living free of spiritual blindness. Right? To be living worldly is the very essence of being spiritually blind. You're, you're living in a satanic system now i'm not saying don't be in the world we're, we're in the world we live on this planet you have a way to get to the moon don't try it don't think you sustain life there very, very long that's not the point though is it um jesus uh, uh, or john john says this in first john 3 1 behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of god therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him that's what it speaks of because you're a child of god you're no longer a child of satan you're no longer walking according to the prince of the power, the heir, your child of God. And so we're called uh, out of that world. The world doesn't know Jesus. The world isn't supposed to know us in that way. And that's why we're so often warned in Scripture about friendship with the world. The dangers of becoming too enamored with the world is all through Scripture. I'm going to give you a few here. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. I know you guys know this one. but Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. In Jude, chapter 1, verses 17 and 19. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts in the world. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. Walking according to the world is one who is devoid of the spirit, which is spiritual blindness. James chapter 4, verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So those who are in the world or from the world or of the world or enamored by the world, Jesus says they'll die in their sins as well you can be self-righteous, you can be worldly, and also be unbelieving, number three. Be unbelieving, you'll die in your sins. Verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now it's interesting, in this text here, the Greek text, he is not present. So read that verse again without he. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Yeah. He just simply said that I am. I, ego, am, I me. Moses saw a bush burning in the wilderness. He went to it, found out it was God, and he wanted to know his name. God said, I am who I am. I am who I am. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same uh, phrase. This is the tetragrammaton. This is the capital Y-H-W-H, that we translate Yahweh. This is the name of God. The name of God that was so sacred to Jews, they didn't even want to speak it. They wanted to pronounce it. So what is Jesus saying here? He's claiming deity here. You want to be unbelieving? You don't want to believe that I am God? Then you'll die in your sins. If you don't believe in the deity of Jesus, as many cults do not, then you'll die in your sins you must believe the full biblical revelation about jesus that he existed eternally as the second person of the trinity that he entered space and time as god incarnate that he was born of a virgin that he lived a sinless life that he died on the cross and his death is the only sufficient substitute for your sin that he rose from the dead ascended to the father that he now intercedes for his own redeemed people and that he will one day return in glory. You must believe all those things. The full biblical revelation of Jesus and to reject those truths about Jesus is to remain unbelieving and consequently, you will die in your sins, Jesus says. Yet there's a fourth way. There's a fourth way and that is to be willfully ignorant. To be willfully ignorant. Verses 25 to 30, look at verse 25. Then they said to him, who are you? Now, this could be actually quite a a sarcastic, rhetorical question. You know, they could be saying this in the manner of, who who are you to tell us that we're going to die in our sins, right? It could be more like that. But Jesus replied to them uh, that he uh, was who he had been claiming to be from the very beginning of his ministry. Look at it. Who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning, right? Jesus hasn't changed his story. It's everything he's been saying from the beginning. They just haven't received it haven't been able to look at verse 26 i have many things to say and to judge concerning you but he who sent me is true and i speak to the world those things which i heard from him jesus could have said much more he could have even condemned them but he didn't he didn't come to do that his purpose is in in coming to to give the world a message from the one who sent him and obviously the message is reliable and true because it comes from the father but in their ignorance They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Look at verse 27. They didn't understand. They didn't understand that he's speaking about God, the the one that they claim to worship. And that's the power of willful ignorance. They had no ears to hear, right? They had no ears to hear. Look at verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I do nothing of myself, as my father taught me, I speak these things. Now, Jesus was pretty much unknown to them, but there would come a day when the claims of Jesus would be vindicated. What is the day that he's speaking of when you lift up the Son of Man? The day of his crucifixion. And what is Jesus referring to here? That the day of his crucifixion, that everybody will, will be, would be saved? No, that's not what he's talking about. But the cross, and and by implication, the resurrection, I would say, erases all doubt from any open mind to the the absolute truth of his deity. I should add as well that the word he in this verse, again, isn't there. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, that I do nothing of myself. Jesus claims deity yet again. The deity of Christ is is the central truth of Christianity that we cannot reject. The work that on the cross proved that Jesus spoke the things that the Father taught him. Everything that he said was true. And in verse 29, he says, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for all I always do those things that please him. The relationship between Jesus and the Father, that's the model. That's the model of love and obedience, right? The Father loves the Son, the son loves the father, and he's willingly obedient to him. And those who are willfully ignorant and have rejected the son are not pleasing the father, are they? And so they are dying in their sins. But Jesus always do, does those things that please him. And as Jesus presented these truths, we find a, a very interesting closing statement. And as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Hmm. At least outwardly. Jesus will specifically address this group in the next section of scripture and we'll look at that next week. But the majority refuse to believe. There are many ways to die in your sins. We just looked at four today. But there's only one way to receive forgiveness of sins. Many ways you can die. Many ways you can just be completely ignorant of your sin and die being in sin. But there's only one way to receive forgiveness of sins. And it's the light. The light came to reveal that. In Acts twenty six eighteen, the light came to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and for the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In Colossians chapter one, verses 13 to 14, Paul says it this way. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 5:8. For you, you, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The ignorant, those that are self-righteous, those that are consumed by the world, right? These are all ways to die in your sin. But forgiveness comes through the light. The light is standing before them, right in human form. They don't see it. They don't understand it. But he is there. And for us, if you're a believer today, you were once darkness, Paul said. That's a hard thing to think about. You were once darkness. Not even just walking in darkness. He says, you were once darkness. Why? What are you talking about? Well, you're part of that whole world system. It all exists in dark. You are now light in the Lord. And so he, he gives us a little encouragement. And I want to give this encouragement to us today, too. So walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. So many Christians today, are, I think, are stuck forgetting that they're children of light, if I can say it that way, that they don't have to walk chained to the things of the past. The past has no hold over you at all. Those things are excuses. The Holy Spirit has freed you from those things, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, right? You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All those scriptures speak of, listen, you have to let the old man go, which is why we're always being told to put on the new. Put on the new man. The old man has been cleansed and cleaned, and we just like to put that old, dirty robe back on. (laughs) Don't do it. He says, walk as children of light. Get rid of that. Walk as children of light. And we can look at the sins of the world that so easily right ensnare others, um, the, the road that leads to dying in your sins, um, and go, well, I'm fine because I'm not as wicked and evil as those people, right? And listen, we're not comparing ourselves with other people. If you want to compare yourself with someone, pare, compare it with Christ. I fall woefully short of him, <laughs> and I recognize my sin. The great thing is this, is that he's taking me out of darkness. I remember what that path was like. And I walk in light now, and there's joy, there's peace, and there's purpose. And so for the believer today, you have those things today. You're not shackled to those things today. Walk as a child of light. Let me pray. God in heaven, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for being the light that has come into the world to bring men to life. Light equals life. You come into the darkness and you shine brightly. And God, you've called us to live in such a way that we would be lights too in this dark world, shining brightly. Many times we don't because we just chain ourselves to the paths that led to darkness. But we're free from those things. I pray that you'd help us to be mindful of the truth that we are, in fact, children of light. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to walk as children of light. I know it's not an easy thing in this life, but Lord, you didn't call us to do it in our own strength, in our own power. That's works. You called us to do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. You didn't leave us orphans. You didn't leave us alone. I give you the power to do it. Help us to be mindful of that. Thank you for being our light. We love you. We praise you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.